Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hey, Kit. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in again this week. And remember, if you can't catch us on the radio, you can always catch us online. Just go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. Just make sure to hit subscribe and then you won't miss any of our future conversations. In today's episode, we're jumping off where we left off in last week's mailbag segment. We're discussing an abortion case going before the U.S. Supreme Court, the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, and what it could mean for the unborn and their mothers across the nation and here in Minnesota. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about taxpayer funding of abortion. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our Bricklayer segment, we talk about what you can do to speak out against the use of tax dollars to pay for abortion. And listeners, if you ever have an idea for one of those Bricklayer segments, just let me know or send me your questions. What questions do you have about faith and politics? Shoot me an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org, or you can leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're blessed to be joined on the line today by Professor Teresa Collette. She is a leading pro-life and pro-family lawyer and law professor. Since 2003, she's been right here in the Twin Cities as professor of law at the University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minneapolis, where she teaches bioethics, constitutional litigation, and property law. A nationally prominent speaker and scholar, she is active in attempts to rebuild the culture of life. Professor Collette has served as a special assistant attorney general for the states of Oklahoma and Kansas, as well as assisting other states' attorneys general in defending pro-life laws. She's a member of the Bar of the United States Supreme Court, and she's also represented members of Congress, uh, the governors of various states, state legislators, state Catholic bishops' conferences, as well as the Illinois State Medical Society in defending partial birth abortion bans and other laws protecting mothers and their unborn children. She's testified in numerous legislatures and has been a prominent speaker on pro-life legislation in a number of places. Because of her work on pro-life causes, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI appointed Teresa to Colette to a five-year term on the Pontifical Council for the Family in 2009. Her appointment was renewed by His Holiness Pope Francis in 2014, where she served until 2016 when the responsibilities of the council were assumed by the Dicastery for the Laity, Family, and Life. Teresa Collette, it is great to speak with you today. Welcome to the program. I am delighted to be joining you, especially about this important topic. Teresa, tell us why you became a lawyer and then a law professor. The fact was that I was bored. And what I knew about law, it was always changing. It had huge importance in society. And so I went to law school primarily out of intellectual curiosity. And I certainly haven't been disappointed by that. And the law is endlessly interesting. But you're different than most law professors in that you have a pretty active practice, both from the standpoint of both legislative advocacy, but also litigation as well. That is true. Primarily appellate litigation, uh, cases where the trial courts already ruled and were up on appeal on a particular point of law. In fact, this month alone, I'll be filing four separate appellate briefs in various courts of appeals as well as in the United States Supreme Court. And that makes for a very lively schedule. (laughs) Undoubtedly. Tell us a little bit about the Pro-Life Law Center at the University of St. Thomas and your work there. 
The center was established as a university-recognized but not funded center in that we wanted to provide opportunities to students who were pro-life or who wanted to work on pro-life issues. Those students will come to me as early as their first year of law school. They can provide all sorts of research assistance. They can help with sort of the technical writing parts of briefs. They have the opportunity to meet with leaders of state legislatures or attorneys general across the country. In fact, one of our most recent graduates is going into pro-life litigation full-time for Americans United for Life, we hope. It provides students an opportunity to really get to know the law and to work with the law in the way that an appellate lawyer would. And It also allows me to offer a class like constitutional litigation where students learn how to do the trial work in pro-life cases. Where do you find the evidence? Who are the good experts? How do you depose an expert? How do you prepare an expert for trial? Those sorts of things. So it gives them both the practical skills and the substantive knowledge in an area that needs a lot of uh, legal support and analysis right now. What are some of the cases that the Pro-Life Law Center has worked on One, of course, is the United States Supreme Court regarding the partial birth abortion ban that was passed by Congress. Your listeners may know that initially the Supreme Court struck down a Nebraska ban of partial birth abortion. But after Congress held congressional hearings on the procedure and had the opportunity to pass a federal ban, the Supreme Court took the case up again And I and my students wrote the brief uh, representing the medical reality of what partial birth abortion is. And in fact, Justice Kennedy discussed the language in our brief in his Supreme Court opinion. I've also worked a lot on issues of parental authority in relationship to their minor daughters. Of course, in Minnesota, we have a judicial bypass, which means when a girl gets pregnant, she doesn't have to tell her parents. She can go to a court and ask them to allow her to go forward alone because she's sufficiently mature and well-informed. And Minnesota, before I got here, was involved in one of the landmark cases in this area. And so I often help state's attorneys general across the country in defending laws that require girls to tell their parents before they obtain an abortion. Even the Supreme Court recognizes that parents are the best guide to teens in crisis. They have more experience with medical procedures. They know the girl's medical history more fully. And frankly, they have lots more resources to support the girl as she makes that decision. So those are two of the areas. And of course, right now, I'm working on the the Dobbs case with Helen Alvare and a team of women lawyers. We are presenting the court with all sorts of data regarding the court's claim that abortion advances women's ability to participate in the social and economic life of the country. The simple fact is when you look at the evidence, there's absolutely no consistent correlation between abortion rates and growing participation by women in the legal profession, in med schools, as judges, as legislators, as business owners. If you look throughout society, there's just no correlation. And where there's no correlation, there can be no causation. The court was just wrong in Casey when it refused to overrule Roe. Here, here! What a great overview of the opportunities young pro-life law students and future lawyers may get if they work with you at the Pro-Life Law Center at the University of St. Thomas. Although, as you mentioned, a great place, but needs funding. So I'm going to help you put in a plug to 
promote the good work of the pro-life law center, you need funding. So no margin, no mission. We're keeping that in mind. Now, I make no uh, attempt to be uh, impartial. I am a former research assistant of yours and benefited greatly from that experience before the Pro-Life Law Center was founded, and I'm very grateful for that. But here's a question you and I both get is there are young Catholics who want to be lawyers for the pro-life cause. What are two quick words of advice you would give them as they discern that call? Well, I would be remiss if I didn't note that you were one of the best research assistants I've ever had. But answering the specific question you gave me, first, they need to be comfortable with reading and writing and learn to read in detail. Most parents that I talk to will say something like, oh, my kid's great at arguing. He'll make a great lawyer. And I think, well, most of the cases are decided on the written submissions far more than the oral arguments. So they need to be prepared to do a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and really work on those skills. The other thing I would tell them is that most law schools today, notwithstanding the growing numbers of young people who are pro-life, um, the legal academy itself is pretty hostile to the pro-life view. Last year, I did probably 10 Zoom debates or presentations at law schools where there were actually protests by students that I was even being allowed to make the case. So make sure you put on the full armor of God. Even if you come to St. Thomas, you will find that some of your classmates strongly believe that abortion is necessary for women's equality. As our brief will prove, that's simply not true. But there's going to be some real opportunities both to evangelize and defend human dignity if you go to law school. Wow, that's really, really exciting and good advice. Keep your prayer life in order, and there's no substitute for uh, grit and hustle and good communication skills. I couldn't agree more. Turning to the Dobbs case, and, and the full title of that case is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a case out of Mississippi and involving a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. Tell us about the law in question, more a little bit more about the law in question in Mississippi and what the Supreme Court is being asked to decide in that case. The state of Mississippi essentially is prohibiting abortions after 15 weeks. And in order to determine whether the child has developed to that point, there's a mandatory ultrasound that has to be shown to the woman and some other procedural requirements. Unsurprisingly, the local abortion provider filed a lawsuit to overturn the law, and the trial court ruled in favor of the abortion provider, as did the Intermediate Court of Appeals. That case now is before the U.S. Supreme Court. And while the Attorney General of Mississippi initially asked the court to answer three questions, the court took only one. It took the question of, can a prohibition pre-viability be upheld as constitutional? And so what it's really asking, because we know the age of viability has dropped now to approximately 22 weeks of gestation, is it possible for a state to prohibit abortions prior to 22 weeks, or must it continue to adhere to the existing law because of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey that the law cannot create a substantial obstacle to women's access to abortion. And if it's a prohibition, that's the whole point of it, to create a substantial obstacle. And so it's really interesting that the court has taken this case on that question, and it gives us some hope that we may see that doctrine reversed. If they do so, they would have to reverse not only Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the court simply said, 
women have come to rely upon this. It's part of what's required for them to advance in society. So we're not going to look at the question again. They'd have to reverse that holding. And they would have to reverse the original Roe versus Wade holding as it was reformulated in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. They would have to recognize the inherent conflict from what the court perceives as a liberty interest of the woman to terminate her pregnancy or to kill her unborn child in conflict with the right of that child to continue its development and progress toward ultimate delivery and to grow and flourish as a child of God throughout its life. There are lots of arguments being made. There are already two amicus briefs that have been filed. Part of the question is if the court does say that pre-viability abortions can be prohibited, how far back will it go? Will it say you can prohibit any pre-viability abortion? That seems unlikely, but is possible. Some lawyers are arguing that it should be pushed back to eight weeks, so the woman would have to obtain an abortion in the first eight weeks. There are other lawyers who are arguing that the 15-week ban is sufficient. It'll be interesting to see how the court navigates its way through this. We believe that we have four Supreme Court justices that are prepared to overrule Roe, but Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, who so often votes with Chief Justice Roberts, are more in question. Some people have suggested, given Justice Barrett's rulings on religious liberty, that she may also be unwilling to go as far as reversing Roe and Casey outright. One of the things that could be done that, frankly, one of the briefs I'm helping with at Dobbs, actually the Pro-Life Center is going to file the brief, is that one way to give both sides what they want, which is not a good result when we're talking about human lives, but the court could reverse Roe and could reverse Casey and then could leave intact a ruling that came out the same day as Roe v. Wade, which is Doe v. Bolton. That's the case where the U.S. Supreme Court said that abortion regulations are permissible, but they have to have a health exception. And when most Americans hear that, we think about your medical or physical condition. But in fact, the court said in that case that the health exception includes things like the woman's age, familial status, is she married, is she single, all sorts of socioeconomic factors. And what we saw in California is that if you include a psychological health exception, the abortion providers simply find that the woman's pregnancy is causing her such emotional distress as a psychological threat to her well-being and perform the abortions. There's a California Supreme Court opinion to that effect saying either the doctors don't understand it or they are positing that every pregnancy poses psychological dangers to the woman that warned an abortion. That's the brief that the Pro-Life Center is filing where we're showing the court that, in fact, if you keep that broad exception, then it will be the exception that swallows the rule and the reversal of Casey and Roe simply won't matter. We're optimistic that if the court's really willing to reverse Roe, that they will also address the health exception in the Mississippi law, which is very narrow. It's exactly what most of us think would be meant by a health exception. It's the woman's physical health related to the pregnancy and the abortion must be necessary 
to protect her life or a substantial impairment of a major bodily function. And so that's another way it can happen. There are all sorts of arguments that will be made in this case. We're speaking with Teresa Collette, distinguished law professor and pro-life advocate. She's a professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law and directs the Pro-Life Law Center. We're talking with her about being a pro-life lawyer, but also about the upcoming Dobbs case from Mississippi that the Supreme Court will hear to determine whether pre-viability abortion bans are, in fact, constitutional. Professor Collette, we often hear there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to overturn Roe v. Wade. You've charted out a number of paths that the justices could take in either limiting Roe or cutting it back or overturning it outright, some of the complications of doing that without overturning also the Doe v. Bolton case. But how come there is so much misconception about overturning Roe v. Wade? And what is the practical effect, even if the justices were to do that in a robust way, what is the practical effect of that? It's not ending abortion in America. So walk us through sort of basic civics around that question. Sadly, you're right. And in Minnesota, there would be virtually zero effect on the ability of abortion providers to continue to provide abortions all the way up to the time the baby's born. And that is the law in Minnesota. We used to actually have a post-viability ban, meaning that abortion providers could not perform abortions after the child could be delivered safely. But in fact, that was overturned by a federal district court in the 1970s, and we've never been able to replace it. And Minnesota today, an abortion can occur the day of the child's intended birth date or calculated birth date. And that will not change in large part because of a state Supreme Court constitutional decision called Doe v. Gomez. And in that case, the Supreme Court said that not only is there a right to abortion written in the Constitution, as invisible as it is to the rest of us, but there is also a right to a state-funded abortion in the state of Minnesota. A group of lawyers, including myself, tried to challenge that a few years back with evidence that, in fact, they were funding every poor woman's abortion in the state when the court opinion had actually said only therapeutic abortions But the court refused to hear our case because we couldn't prove that a particular abortion had been funded in a way that would have violated the limitation. So in Minnesota, Roe could go tomorrow, and we would still have to continue the fight through our legislature looking for either a constitutional amendment or through our courts looking for a reversal of Dovey Gomez. There's a case in the courts right now in Minnesota that is seeking to strike down virtually every regulation that we have on abortion, including parental consent, including having to report health data to the State Department of Health. And we are still in the district court. The court would not allow the Minnesota Senate to intervene. So that case is being defended by our attorney general, who, as we all know, has a long history of not only supporting abortion rights, but uh, supporting the most radical conception of abortion rights during his period in Congress. So the, the bottom line is, that even if Rose overturned, the battleground turns to the states and we could have a st- you could be living in a state such as Minnesota. Uh, although there are good regulations in place that protect the health and safety of women who make that choice, such as parental notification, the reality is the courts could overturn that and then shudder 
we might be stuck with having to do a constitutional amendment of some variety to either strip the courts of their jurisdiction or protect life outright in our state constitution. The reality is we still have to win hearts and minds and and win the, the legislative battle and the legal battle in the state. So the work doesn't end. The work in many ways just begins if Roe v. Wade is overturned. You're absolutely right. And honestly, Jason, the most successful constitutional amendments in this area have been what are called abortion neutrality amendments that simply say that the state constitution says nothing about abortion, nor should it brood in that way, which would leave it totally up to the legislature about how we deal with the question of abortion in the state. You talked about amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs. Give our listeners a two-sentence introduction of what those are and what they try to do, and then a little bit more about that argument that you're making that, no, we don't need abortion to have women's equality. Amicus briefs have uh, the purpose of providing the court information that's not available to them through the record of the case to supplement it, not necessarily in terms of hard evidence, but more to simply say, here are some other perspectives. Because remember, courts are supposed to be deciding conflicts between the two parties in front of them and not making the broader societal assessment. That's the job of the legislature, to go and look at you know how things are operating and how society is organized and responds to various laws. And yet, in this instance, of course, the court struck down the laws of all 50 states, including states where the abortion had been liberalized to some degree, like New York and Hawaii. And yet the court's opinion was even more radical than the New York and Hawaii law at that point in time. So amicus briefs are a way of bringing that societal context before the court, since it's not usually its function. And so this amicus brief that I'm writing with Helen Alvare and Elizabeth Kirk and Erica, and I apologize, I'm going to mispronounce her name. Bakiaki, she's been on our yes, show. Thank you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a new book out, and she's, it's, it's wonderful. I read it in page proof. But the four of us are arguing, based on our own research, that the claim the court makes in Casey that abortion is being relied upon as a backup to contraception and that women's ability to advance in society is conditioned on abortion is simply false. And what's really interesting is when you actually read the trial court opinion in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is where they're supposed to make the factual determination, certainly not at the appellate level, there's no reference to such a finding. There's, it, there doesn't appear to have been any evidence put on to that question, and yet the Supreme Court makes this Olympian-type comment that looking over society, we have determined that this is a preconditioned woman's success, and it's simply not true. If you look at the abortion rates, which went up significantly, exponentially, some would say, in the first 20 years after Roe, then you see women progress. But there are lots of reasons for that, things like passage of Title VII, passage of the Equal Pay Act, passage of any number of other major pieces of federal legislation, as well as Supreme Court cases, Reed versus Reed, et cetera. And so this idea that this is the cause of women's advancement is just not sustained, although there is, in time, there's a correlation. But then what's really interesting is if you look at the past 20 years when abortion rates have been falling, dramatically. Women's advancement in society has continued 
while the abortion rates are dropping precipitously. So, for example, today you are more likely to find a woman attending law school than a man or med school. You also see uh, dramatic increases in the number of women in Congress. You see dramatic increases in the number of women owning businesses. In fact, and what's particularly interesting to me is in 2016, women-owned businesses by women of color increased more than 437% over the prior five-year census of economics in the country. So you see all sorts of ways in which women continue to flourish and advance, at least as measured by economic or social status, and yet abortion rates are being halved. So if there's no correlation, there certainly can't be any causation, and that's really the thrust of our brief. We also note that in often there is some evidence that, in fact, abortion has hampered women's ability to actually be accommodated as women in the workplace. If, if it's just personal choice, why on earth does an employer have to accommodate it in a special way? And so you see these sort of dramatic, ridiculous cases think cases like the one out of Washington, D.C., where young women who wanted to be emergency medical service workers were told that they'd be on probation their first year, and if they got pregnant, they better have an abortion or they'd lose their job. Now, ultimately, the women sued and won in that case, but you've got the big expose of the New York Times about how pregnancy discrimination is rampant in major corporations throughout the country that came out last year. And so if it really is just a matter of indifference, it makes no sense that we protect it differently. But the truth is, we all know that none of us came into this world except through pregnancy. It is unique. It is different. It is particularly important both to societies and to individual families. And so the court's just mistaken, and that's the brief we're presenting. Wonderful. Very informative. And our listeners are going to get a better sense of why you are a trusted advocate and advisor on so many important causes. Teresa, where can people go to learn more about the Pro-Life Law Center? At the University of St. Thomas website, which the URL is www.stthomas.edu backslash pro-life. That's www.stthomas.edu stthomas.edu backslash pro-life. And I really appreciate you letting people know about it. We are very interested in helping students grow and develop as we see with the state battles coming, God willing, that we're going to need a large number of skilled, committed lawyers who understand this area of the law. Wonderful. So a great cause of support and a great way of training the next generation of pro-life advocates because the battle, even if Roe's overturned, the battle's just beginning. So Professor Teresa Klett from the University of St. Thomas, thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, so any listeners out there are members of our Catholic Advocacy Network. They've probably already seen and heard a little bit about this, but 
President Biden, in his budget proposal, has removed the Hyde Amendment and some other pro-life protections for the upcoming fiscal year. And so one of our listeners is asking, doesn't Minnesota already use taxpayer dollars for abortion? And so would more of our tax dollars be used for abortion under this new proposal? Jason, could you break this down a little bit? Well, the short answer is that federal funding for abortion is banned. So at the federal level, there's the Hyde Amendment puts restrictions on federal programs and the way in which they can fund abortion. The short answer is they can't. The Biden administration is working to overturn that now. And that's a big issue in Congress. And you can add your voice to that cause, as we'll discuss in a moment. But at the state level, taxpayers do fund abortion. And they fund abortion because there's a constitutional mandate from our Minnesota Supreme Court that women in poverty who seek an abortion and can't afford one are funded through our state's assistance programs, our, their health assistance programs. So we have taxpayer funding of, of abortion in Minnesota. We don't at the federal level. So it's state funding. It's not federal funding. And the question about the Hyde Amendment is funding at the federal level. We need a constitutional amendment or a new uh, state Supreme Court to rule differently in Minnesota that state dollars should not be used to fund abortion. So it's the issue of taxpayer funding of abortion it operates at both the state and the federal level, and we have to be attentive to the issues at both. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And what could people do in this week's Bricklayer segment related to that? You can speak out against the use of federal taxpayer dollars by signing a petition that will be given to members of Congress. That petition can be found at notaxpayerabortion.com. That's a site set up by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Again, notaxpayerabortion.com. You can also send a message to President Biden and Minnesota's members of Congress through our Catholic Advocacy Network Action Center. Simply go to mncatholic.org slash action center. Again, those websites are notaxpayerabortion.com and mncatholic.org forward slash action center. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kids of Peniac of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a very blessed day.